Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Eden Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today, just like last time, we've got a concept. This time it's liberty. Edmund has been given some stuff to read, some stuff to think about. And we're going to see what Edmund has been thinking about. So Edmund, liberty, what do you think? Mm -hmm. So following um, Isaiah Berlin's distinction between positive liberty and negative liberty. A lot of discussions about what liberty means have, uh, have focused on just this distinction between the uh, positive liberty to do things and the negative liberty um, from doing certain things. So the idea is that um, you can have liberty or be free in, in two kinds of ways. You can either um, be free from something that you, you don't want to be dependent on, or you can be free to do something that you want to have the ability to do. And uh, I, I think that one way of framing negative liberty is as uh, a kind of independence, that negative liberty is not being dependent on something that you don't want to be a dependent on. And so Negative liberty is being independent in some way. But positive liberty, uh, it seems a bit different. And I, I want to say that these two concepts of liberty do seem quite different, um, though they are connected. Positive liberty, the ability to do something, has often been equated, um, such as in the, um, in the work of Thomas Hobbes and David Hume with power. Um, the idea that the liberty to do something is the power to do something. It's a capacity. Um, and in, in, in this way, liberty can be uh, equated with something that it seemed that people often associate it with not with being with power, and I think one reason is that negative liberty is seen as opposed to power in some way. That to have negative liberty, we don't want to be constrained by power so much, and uh, and Isaiah Berlin associates negative liberty with a kind of more um, British liberal um, individualism, um, whereas um, positive liberty. Um, is a is a thicker idea of of freedom that isn't just a freedom from the constraining authority of the state and negative liberty is often framed uh, in um, in liberalism as being something that means that we're not constrained by the state in an overly kind of thick or constraining way um, but positive liberty is something that um that we really have the the ability to actively um, choose to do. And I think following our discussion in, in some previous episodes, perhaps positive liberty has uh, some similarity with uh, rather than rather than a, a, a British conception of um, liberty, something like 
um, Hegel's view of freedom as the ability to to choose um, in 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 some way to, or perhaps a more perhaps Weber's idea of choosing between um, different ideals to choose between uh, many gods and and, and demons. Um, Whereas negative liberty is is a kind of an absence, is an absence of coercion. Positive liberty is a presence of something. Um, so negative liberty is the absence of the things that might uh, that might erode freedom. Whereas positive liberty is the presence of things uh, or the, that might actively constitute uh, freedom. Now, of course, these ideas of liberty and freedom are are not the same, and. Um, Bernard Williams has argued that liberty is something that has kind of replaced freedom over time, that has become more important, um, that has displaced the role of freedom um, in, in some way, that we've transitioned from a morality of freedom to a morality of liberty, where, where liberty places more of an emphasis on those things which are, which are liberal, um, which are uh, in our contemporary society, valued, but there's also the argument that liberty is an older idea, and uh, one person who makes this argument is the historian of political thought Quentin Skinner, who um, one of his books is titled "Liberty Before Liberalism," because um, Skinner thinks that it's possible to have uh, liberty um, as conceived of by people before liberalism, before our contemporary uh, context, and. Uh, Skinner makes the argument that there is a third concept of liberty um, beyond positive and negative ideas of liberty. And we can find this idea of uh, liberty in Roman political thought, but particularly in um, kind of the kind of early modern Renaissance Republican arguments that uh, Skinner thinks are quite interesting um, pre-liberal ideas of of freedom, uh, such as Machiavelli, not the Machiavelli of the prince who argued that um, that we need to avoid doing um, what is good, or at least what is perfectly good, in order uh, in order to um, be competitive in the in the power politics of of, of the of the modern state. Um, but the Machiavelli of discourses on Livy, um, where Machiavelli is writing about. Uh, Livy's history of Rome and writing about how how the Roman state worked, um, whereas the Machiavelli of the Prince has got more of a kind of contemporary Renaissance focus on what's happening in Italian city states at the time. Um, whereas, yeah, the Machiavelli um, of discourses on Livy is thinking about the ways in which um, uh, the Roman state promoted a, a certain kind of liberty, as as Skinner. Uh, tries to uh, tr- tries to say, um, and Machiavelli has this idea of liberty too. He does use the um, uh, the word libertas, but he he seems to think that liberty is a something that's quite political that involves people um, citizens participating in a state um, and everyone kind of having some kind of political contribution to make in pursuing glory, um, Gloria in trying to um, play an active role in, uh, in, in the state's preservation um, and perhaps in the state's e- expansion and in conflicts within the state. Uh, and uh, Machiavelli thinks that class conflict um, it was one of the things 
that made uh, Rome dynamic, that promoted liberty, that prevented any one class from uh, dominating and ensured that everybody could constantly contribute in some way politically to what was going on. And if they couldn't contribute today, then they could contribute tomorrow because of this class conflict, um, because there was always something to do because uh, nothing was ever, nothing was ever uh, settled in a permanent way. Um, and so liberty has um, uh, predecessors before uh, liberalism and the concept of liberty is something that is um, that, that is um, not simply a product of liberalism, but it's also the case that uh, I guess following the um, the uh, um, liberté, égalité, fraternité idea from um, from the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity as the basic values of some kind of liberal republicanism. Um, that liberty is associated with uh, with the modern world uh, in a way that it's not so much associated with with ancient concepts of 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 politics. Liberty, for instance, doesn't feature that prominently, if at all, uh, my re- recollection in the works of um, Plato, Aristotle, or Confucius. Um, whereas liberty is is very much uh, fashionable today. And I think one reason is this uh, role that liberty has played in justifying um, a, a p- particular arrangements of of power. And I think it's very difficult to get away from that, uh, whether we're thinking about it through a Machia- Machiavelli's frame or through a contemporary frame. Um, liberty is really um, embedded in... Uh, who has power and what do they have the power to do? And uh, whether that power is independent, whether it's whether there's negative liberty is, is another question. And Machiavelli uh, thinks about liberty also in the sense of the state being independent from other states. And the state that has liberty is a state that is uh, that, that makes its own laws. And Hobbes says that this is a perfectly valid conception of liberty. Um, he just, Hobbes just doesn't want liberty to be applied to justify republicanism in the domestic context because Hobbes prioritizes authority over liberty there. And Hobbes actually makes the argument in Leviathan that we um, should avoid extremes of extreme authority and extreme liberty. He ma- makes this argument in, in the uh, opening dedication to the work, um, but as but in the main body itself, Hobbes seems to justify uh, two things. One is defining liberty merely as a very kind of bare kind of um, liberty, which which might be kind of negative um, and might be kind of positive too. But it's very watered down. It's just saying that liberty is freedom from chains, the ability to make uh, choices. Um, the ability to move. The ability to move. Yeah, that's really it. Yeah, because yeah, everything is matter in motion for Hobbes. Right. There's an emphasis on being able to move. I, I mean, in a way that I, I want to say that, that that in a sense is a very pure conception of liberty because it's just saying that liberty is power, uh, that liberty is the ability to do things. Um, uh, liberty is just motion and the spring of motion is uh, on Hobbes's conception and uh, Hume's conception. Uh, Hume being a successor to Hobbes uh, in in some ways, um, 
Um, so not that not others. Yeah. Yes. Um, Let, let's let's play with some of the conceptual categories you've introduced a bit. So, of course, you started with Isaiah Berlin and his two concepts of liberty, negative and positive. And I think that's very often where people end up starting. But too often, it's where they end up finishing, too. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. Part of the tricky thing is that almost any liberty you can think of could be framed in a more negative or positive way. Right, right. That's a good point. A freedom, which is a protection from something, uh, is also very often something which enables you to do something else. Mm. And that oftentimes the reason you're attracted to the one is because you're getting the other. Mm. Right? So say the, the freedom to go to a university is also the freedom to not have your decision to go to university interfered with by something external. Yeah, 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 yeah. And for that, right? yeah, and for that reason on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on ne positive and negative liberty uh, by Ian Carter, um, Carter describes a view from a, a scholar of uh, liberty um, McCallum, who defines the basic concept of freedom, the concept in which uh, everyone agrees as follows, a subject a or agent is free from certain constraints or preventing conditions to do or become certain things. Freedom is therefore a triadic relation, that is a relation between three things, an agent, certain preventing conditions, and certain doings or becomings of uh of the agent. So a statement about freedom or unfreedom can be translated into a statement of the above form by specifying what is free or unfree, from what it is free or unfree, and what it is free or unfree to do or become, end quote. Right. So very often this turns on what counts as something which is an external thing which can constrain the agency of, of the one that makes the choice, right? So on a lot of negative accounts, the interfering agent is the state, or it's another person. And interferences which don't come from agents like states or individuals are not treated as interferences, right? So right, if we talk right. about, say, the freedom to go to university, well, one of the things which might constrain you is that you don't have the money to pay tuition, right? You lack the resources. Mm. Or one of the things which might constrain you is that you don't test well enough to be able to get in. Right? Now, these are things which could be framed as internal to you or external to you. Right? If these things are external, then you are in some sense being prevented by these things from going to university. But if these things are treated as part of you, then they're not interfering with you in the same way. So the yeah. negative-positive distinction trades on our willingness to say that some of these things are part of you and don't count as interferences. Right, Richard. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is why Hobbes says that it's liberty from external impediments that we're looking for. And I think for this reason, Hobbes is advocating a view of liberty that isn't totally different from 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 uh, our own in our context because it's he's making this argument that it's uh yeah it's it's liberty from these external factors and the internal springs of 
of motion. Well, that, those those can be part of liberty um, because that's something we have. Well, Hobbes doesn't say we have control over it, but that is the um, that's the reason people often give for accepting this conception of uh, liberty. Often, people I think have a kind of a Hobbesian view at heart of their conception of liberty, but they add lots of other concepts. Like, for instance, they might add the idea that we are um, that the Kant's view that we are we are autonomous. We can um, um, postulate that we are free on a deep metaphysical level from all all constraints other than moral duty um, and that we we have we can have these pure motivations that aren't corrupted by uh, but by passions well, it's, or it's, inclinations it's free from everything except what counts as part of the self right, right right yes yes so because of this it's all predicated on where you draw the line between internal and external where you draw the self other distinction right Right. right. And part of the reason why liberty has become such a critical concept at this particular time in the history of political thought is that there is a fixation in the modern era on the self-other distinction and on trying to say when precisely the individual ends and the society begins. This yeah. is in part because of how powerful modern states are. Yeah, yeah. And how much influence state the state has over our formative context, over schools, over families, over religion, over all sorts of different things, the workplace and so on, the media. And also because we feel alienated from the state, because we're not participating in it in the kind of intimate way in which, say, Greeks in Athens participated in the Athenian state, mm. right? So that the state feels very powerful, but also alien. So we treat it as an external, which subjects us to control, and we want to be protected from that control because we don't feel like we're part of it, right? If we felt like we were part of the state, if we didn't feel that there was a self-other's di distinction between us and the polity, then we wouldn't be fixated on being free from the constraints imposed by the polity. Right, Because right. the constraints imposed by the polity would just be constraints in which we were imposing upon ourselves. And when Hobbes tries to make the argument that you shouldn't feel constrained by the state, that's precisely what he says. He says that you are part of the state, and so when the state is constraining you, that's you constraining you. Yeah, and one point that Skinner makes is that um, in Hobbes, we see a transition from um, what came before Hobbes, uh, a republican idea of of, of, of liberty as non-domination to Hobbes's view of liberty as non-interference. That Hobbes also says that we find liberty in, in, in the silence of the laws, where the laws don't apply in those areas where the law is silent, we can be free. Um, so, and this, this develops in later um, liberal thought towards, you know, a more fleshed out conception of, of liberty as uh, freedom from um, uh, several different kinds of uh, ways in which the state can uh, can, can constrain us. Yeah, and I guess yeah, and, and definitely, ironically, uh, as Benjamin puts it, because this modern state is so immensely powerful, and perhaps it's the, because the, the modern state is so powerful and so distant that it has to justify itself by saying that it's not really there. It, the modern state has to deny its own existence for it to be acceptable to its citizens. Both powerful and remote, right? So if it was powerful, but it didn't feel remote, then we wouldn't have the same issue. 
Mm. And if it were were remote but weak, we wouldn't have the same issue. Yes, right? yes. And you can think about historically, there, there have been both types of states. There have been empires that are extremely light touch, that make very little interference in people's day-to-day lives. They may feel very, very remote. The ordinary person may have no real notion of who's even in charge, but it doesn't matter because the state doesn't really impinge upon them, right? If you think about, say, Achaemenid Persia, the Persian Empire, very, very light-touch administration makes almost no interference in the ordinary life of the subject, right? So it's a state that from the ordinary person's point of view is kind of weak. It doesn't have a huge influence over there the way they think or the kinds of decisions that they make. Uh, Very remote, but it doesn't matter much, right? And conversely, you can think of a state like Athens, where uh, you make a lot of very, very critical decisions, which can intervene quite heavily in the lives of particular citizens. But since those citizens are intimately involved in the political process, they don't feel alienated from the institutions of the city in the same way. Instead, they feel part of the decisions. And so because they're part of the decisions, it's okay that the decisions are quite heavy. Right, right. right. So you can have light, t- you can have remote, but light touch, or you can have heavy, but intimate, right? Yeah, yeah. And so in Greek thought, because the Greeks are operating in a city-state context, and because Rome is initially a city, in Greco-Roman thought, the emphasis is very much on it being okay that the state is quite heavily involved, provided that you are a citizen who is able to participate in the state institution, right? As opposed to a slave who is a subject and has no ability to participate. So there's a lot of emphasis in Greco-Roman thought on distinctions between masters and slaves, between citizen and non-citizen members of society. Those who engage in ruling and being ruled, and those who are just subjects or just slaves, right? That distinction becomes very critical. So in Greco-Roman thought, there's even an emphasis on freedom as a kind of distributive thing, because it is the slave population and the non-citizen population as a whole, which includes, of course, uh, in in many Greek cities, it even includes women, uh, who are making it possible for the citizen population to engage in the activities associated with politics, right? So to engage in leisure, to engage in in, uh, cultivating the virtues in oneself and others, you have to have all of this free time, which is freed up by the slave population. And that slave population exists not for its own sake, but Uh, And not for the sake of its own ends, which it chooses for itself, but for the sake of the ends of the masters, for the sake of the ends of the citizens, right? And so it is only because of this large enslaved population, this population which is subjected to dominion, that there can be in antiquity this free population, which gets to have an intimate relationship with politics, because it has a bunch of time which it can spend contemplating how to act politically in a way which services the good or services virtue, mm. right? So that's that's a configuration which only works if there is that level of intimacy in the relationship. And the thing that happens with the modern state is that intimacy drops away. Now, you can drop the intimacy away, but if you're going to drop the intimacy away, 
typically the way that you do that is by having the empire have a much thinner interaction with subjects, right? And so one of the things you notice is that the empire plays a much more constraining role in the behavior of local elites, the Roman Empire, right? Local elites will be told what to do a lot. But the ordinary person who lives in a Roman province will largely continue to exist uh, within their municipality, within their municipum, in more or less the same way that they previously did. Farmers will continue to exist. You know, small farmers, peasants, farm workers, artisans, craftsmen, these people will, will largely go on existing in the same way. All that might change is there will be an expansion of trade and, and some development of infrastructure, right? The people whose lives really change are the local elites. So those local elites have to be told a story about how they will be able to become citizens. They or their children or their grandchildren will be able to become citizens of Rome and therefore to have a participatory role of some kind in Roman imperial institutions, right? And so they will have an opportunity to build this intimate relationship with the polity. And in that sense, the polity will be them. It will be theirs. Right Now, when you try to tell this story, as Hobbes does, of you having some kind of, of agency in what the state does, that story only works if you feel like you're really there in some sense, right? And in larger states where there's larger populations, it's harder for people to feel like they're really there, like they're really involved in what the state's doing. And this is a big part of why Hobbes's theory doesn't end up really persuading people that they were there, that they made those decisions. Mm. And it's a big part of why we get this whole literature on representation, which I think we'll do another episode on at some point, of what it actually means to be represented by the state. Because since you aren't going to be able to be there and directly make political decisions, your way of feeling intimately part of the state will be through some mediating figure. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what kind of mediating relationship will be sufficient for you to actually feel like you were part of the decision, such that you accept the state's decisions as in some way your own? Right? Yeah. But if you are able to buy that, if you are actually able to, to feel that the state's decisions are your own, then whatever the state does, it doesn't infringe your freedom, at least from your point of view. Right? Mm. So that the difficulty is that it's become harder and harder for people to feel that kind of identity with the state. Part of this is because states have become bigger. Part of it is because people's demands for what would count as feeling actually part of the state's decisions have often gotten a bit thicker. People want more and more out of the state to feel like they're really part of it. They want the state, say, to reflect their religion or their culture, their uh, ethnic or racial or, or whatever kind of content happens to be important for them. They want the state to mirror that stuff. And since people have different kinds of cultural content, it's hard for the state to mirror everybody's cultural content at the same time. So if you're only going to feel that the state is you, if the state mirrors your aesthetics and your culture, then it's going to be very hard for the state to do that for everybody at once. Right? And that tends to lead to this feeling of being a subject of the state, of not really having the state be one's own thing. 
right? Yet at the same time, the state's capacity to shape us and to form the conditions under which we are raised and, and develop as people, that has tended to continue to grow over time, mm. right? So the state has a larger and larger and larger role in shaping our consciousness, but we feel more and more and more alienated from that process. And right. this leads to a, a kind of fixation on preserving some sense in which we feel autonomous or free. So that we don't have to feel that we are dominated by a state in which we play no role. Yeah, yeah. Now you could imagine, you know, imagine a totalitarian society where you really don't play any role at all, right? A society which reaches into every aspect of life and in which you have no agency. Now, if you were existing in such a society, the way that you would go on existing in that society would be to persuade yourself that somehow you did have some kind of liberty or freedom, right? Either that or you would have to genuinely love the totalitarian state and, and identify with it as you. And so one of the things that's kind of eerie about the modern era is that people do not seem to feel that the state is them, but they are very intent on persuading themselves that they are nonetheless free of this ever more powerful state. And this means that we come up with a lot of rationales for why we are, in some meaningful sense, separate from the increasingly powerful formative institutions which have shaped us from the moment we were born. You know, we come into the world and we are immediately in a family structure shaped by the state. We go to schools shaped by the state. Everything we consume comes to us through supply chains shaped by the state. Then we get a job and we go to university and we do all of this through corporate structures shaped by state regulation, right? There's a huge amount of, of state involvement in all kinds of stuff. And if you notice, the people who really want freedom from tend to be libertarian or right-wing. They tend to be very interested in a weaker state, a state that has a lighter touch, mm. in part because they, they want some level of sense of self as distinct from other. Right. And also the role of the market, which uh, is important here, that the, the, the modern world is both this... Um, this big bureaucratic uh, state, uh, but also um, this market um, economy um, right. driven by the but profit. The, the thing motive. about the market is that the market also is, is impersonal in much the same way that the state is. It's hard to feel personally part of the market. Yeah. Although, yeah. again, you are encouraged to feel personally part of the market. You're encouraged to practice a consumer ethic or to think of yourself as a consumer. Conversely, you are encouraged to think of yourself as an entrepreneur or a small business right. person. I think a lot of concepts of liberty in, in the modern world are shaped by the economy um, more than anything else. People define liberty as either directly just like going and making money as kind of liberty um, or kind of freedom from state interference, but freedom to do stuff in the market. Um, uh, and I mean, often when freedom is framed more abstractly as some kind of um, abstract autonomy, that is uh, that is still reacting to the ways in which uh, the market sets people in competition with each other. 
and that can lead to a sense of an, a kind of excessive sense of self and individuality or separateness. Um, or, 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 well, and it's yeah. interesting how that mirrors the state. Because just as in antiquity, people felt that they had some kind of identity with the state, in much the same way, a lot of people on the right feel they have an identity with the market. Right. They'll go, well, the market is just is just what people want. Or it's just what – and if you want something to happen, well, go buy it or don't go well, buy for, it for the ancients, because you're the market. For, for, the, for the ancients, the state is us. For, for the libertarians uh, today, uh, the market is us. Right. But in both cases, it's an institution in which most citizens probably only exercise a relatively small share of power and decision making. Right. I mean, right? partly because the market is framed as something where power doesn't apply, where it's just ruled by the, 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 the benign laws of supply and demand, or if, if not benign, then it's just how things work. <laughs> no, 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 no power relationships there. It's just how things work. It's just people... People getting what they want and giving to others what they want. This kind of way in, which, in framing the the relationship as transactional rather than uh, f infused with power. Um, well, yeah, and in both cases, this is accomplished by legitimating a particular kind of procedure or process as fair, as thereby producing an outcome that you can safely identify with. It's, so in yeah. the case of the market, there's a process. But also in the case of the political system, we talk about democracy as a procedure by which if that's being followed, then you know in some sense you're part of what the state is doing, even if the sense in which you're part of it is very trivial and very minor, in much the same way that someone who occasionally you know, goes and buys groceries or what have you uh, and makes a small, tiny contribution to the total consumption in the economy. Uh, that person also makes some small infinitesimal contribution to what is produced and what is consumed. Yeah, which is kind of ironic because um, the, the voter and yeah. the consumer are very similar people in in modernity. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point because yeah, and it, it's yeah. interesting because some people really think that they're you know, acting as a consumer is very real. Uh, and that that is a very legitimate procedure in a market, but don't feel the same way about voters in a democracy. Oh, yes. And yeah. conversely, some people feel very good about being a voter, but not very good about being a consumer. Yet in both cases, it, it is hard to really argue that there's an identity there. I guess we're, yeah, we're, we're kind of a consumer more of the, t we're kind of, people consume and work more of the time than they vote, that they vote quite irregularly. But people have to work and consume regularly, and so may be more identified with. I mean, people identify more with, um, with with their buying habits or with their jobs than with, um, than with the parties that they vote for. Because people only vote in the modern world once every couple of years, often or sometimes more regularly, but not 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 every day. And that day. also depends on on whether you care about this as an absolute or relative thing, because if everyone consumes more often, then even though you consume more often than you vote, in relative terms, your consumer power is still pretty marginal. And right. at least when it comes to voting, it's one person, one vote. Whereas when it comes to consumption, the amount of money you have influences the amount you are able to influence right. the market. But if you have the money to buy a product, you get the product. But if you vote for a party, there's no guarantee that party will win. This is true. And you can also mix together these things, of course, because there are all sorts of ways to use money to influence politics.
Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I mean that 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 is even more distant because because um, because of the role of big money in, in in politics means that there's a disincentive against you know people donating um, money because they feel that well it'll just be trumped by uh, the the money of the rich in politics and. Whereas, whereas when it comes to stuff that people can consume, it's possible to buy cheaper things. Whereas it's not, it's difficult to do that with with parties. Um, there are a small, there are a relatively kind of e- even in proportional representation systems, there are a relatively small number of parties. When it comes to products, though, there are there are so many products. Uh, there's almost an infinity of products. Or an apparent infinity of products and endless, and endless. Well, there's yeah. there's so many products, but they're all they're all kind of the same. Uh, isn't that isn't that similar to parties too? Maybe 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 that that really fleshes out that that similarity you've pointed out between the modern state and capitalism. That both products and parties all look kind of different. They have different aesthetics, but substantially, they're kind of the same. And what they what they share in common, the, their substance is a kind of is a lack of substance, really. Uh, What they share in common is this kind of abstract instrumental rationality and calculation, um, but without without what Weber called substantial or moral rationality anchoring it, because neither the modern state nor um, capitalism feel sufficiently close to people to be... To, to really be kind of moral entities. I mean, people do moralize, I think, more about the market than they do about the state. Um, I think people moralize quite heavily about voting. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And with certain kinds of political speech, too. Certain kinds of political speech are treated. Increasingly, we treat speech as a consumptive act. Right, right. But I feel I feel this is a product. Uh, especially on social media where we have retweeting and and liking yeah but i feel this speech is treated as a commodity i feel this moral dogmatism though comes out of a, a moral nihilism in the end because it i think it, it kind of goes back to durkheim's point that anime a sense of normlessness uh or, or a sense of kind of I- isolation uh the anime for durkheim is the insufficient presence of society and individuals and so you could frame that as the insufficient presence of of various kinds of, of social structures in people's lives and uh, or, or at least the, the the distance the apparent distance of structures from people um and and Durkheim says that anime produces a longing for infinity that when we feel um that that when we feel isolated uh that we we long for we we we, we, we when we when we feel we have nothing when we feel so um empty and alone and uh left behind in the the, the grand kind of uh, structures of, of the modern world that we we long for a kind of a kind of transcendence and this can lead us to kind of a a, a dogmatic assertion of the truth of various different values or schemes when in fact this is just a way of coping with the situation in a kind of 
in a kind of like Stockholm syndrome way by kind of just by, by falling in love with the various things that are imprisoning us by worshipping, you know, say a particular product or, or a particular uh, party or celebrity personality or a particular aesthetic, um, you know, and we, 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 we may latch onto something to give ourselves meaning because in the end, our lives have been emptied of meaning by, uh, but by, by the, the meaningless, uh, the, the meaningless constant, um, hum of this very mechanical world and this world. Well, yeah, so we, yeah. we get this focus on, on rote choices and liberty to be found in these rote choices, these small choices that have to be blown up into big choices. We have to treat them as big because our liberty is just as big as the choices. So the more significant the choices are, the more free we feel. So the more you believe that the choices you're making when you vote or the choices you make when you go to the store or you go online and you buy things, the more you feel that those choices are meaningful and important, the more freedom you have in a society where freedom is indexed to those kinds of choices. Right, but, but there's also the kind of like romantic abstraction from all of the choices, like uh, just just go, going off into into dream world, um, in, into uh, you know, into forgetting about um, all our kind of earthly problems and uh, and kind of fantasies and imagination can help us get out of this of of these problems but they don't actually solve the the, the problems they distract well, us oftentimes those things themselves get turned into consumer choices right right uh, you end up consuming say fantasy uh, stories or different kinds of television different kinds of escapist art right right this this kind of reification or yeah. romantic relationships i mean anything can be kind of put into this matrix of of small choices the the thing is so people can look at this and go okay well you're saying that just any choice that anybody makes uh, you know isn't real liberty because because it's just a small, uh, superficially aesthetic choice. And you could portray almost any choice as superficially aesthetic. So what's the alternative to that? I mean, the alternative would be to feel an actual identity with the larger universe that we're in and the larger society that we're in, the polity that we're in. This sense of identity has been ruptured mm. by... The fact that the state has grown so powerful and so remote. I guess for Hegel, and the uh, fact that the market has grown so powerful and so remote. Uh, for Hegel, civil society organizations are meant to mediate between the particular subject and the very abstract state, um, and these organizations uh, for Hegel include kind of corporations and 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 and, and market um, actors. Uh, Right. And yeah. again, they have to give you a feeling of choice. So you might not be able to feel like you really have, say, an identity with the state or with the market, but you might be able to feel like you have an identity with a company or with a family or with a church or with some social activism organization that you choose to be part of. Maybe it's a labor union Right, you you get some other kind of organization which is not so big as the state or the market, some smaller 
structure. And if you can feel a sense of identity with that structure, yeah, then through that structure, you can feel part of things. Yeah, it's kind of, it, we're kind of find, trying to find alternatives to, like, it's kind of like latching onto mini states, like the corporation or a kind of some other civil society organization, um, be it a kind of a, 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 an organization united by similar like, aesthetic tastes or, or activism or whatever it is. It's a kind of a way of trying to find an alternative to, the distant modern state. Um, and I think this is something which especially bothers both the libertarian right and the kind of anarchist left. So the libertarian right says, you know, I don't really feel like I'm making decisions. And the way that I'm going to feel like I'm making decisions is to be more participatory within markets in a more direct way yeah with less intermediaries and conversely the left anarchist says i don't feel like i'm really making decisions and the way i want to fix that is by being more participatory within government and the way i want to do that is by having more localized smaller forms of government communities, localism, devolution, autonomy for regions, independence movements for regions, make government smaller so that I can be more involved with it. And huh. conversely, oftentimes right libertarians really don't like big companies and multinationals and oligopolies. They want it smaller so that they can be more participatory within it. Mm. The trouble, of course, is that that is not how all of this works. The trend in modernity is to bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more and more distant, faceless structures and processes that you don't really get to be part of in that kind of way anymore. And the legitimacy of these big faceless structures and processes depends on being able to either get people to stop caring about being that involved in much the same way that the Persian Empire had subjects who did not care about being involved in it. Or if you can't get people to stop caring about being involved, come up with more and more elaborate ways of making them feel involved without actually involving them. Mm. And this is kind of where we're at politically, because we certainly cannot actually give people a feeling of being part of government in the way that an Athenian felt part of government. And we certainly can't give people a feeling of being part of the market in the way that somebody who goes to a marketplace in uh, a primeval society and barters would, would feel part of a market. You're not going to get that back. So, all we can do is either induce people to give up on having any level of real involvement in major social decisions or give them ever more elaborate ways of feeling involved without being involved. Mm. And so a big part of the reason why there's such a focus on liberty is that 
the only way to say that we have liberty is to water it down to the point at which we don't have it. Yeah. That's the contradiction. To live in a society where institutions have this level of power. To, and, and oftentimes you notice a lot of people who are uncomfortable with this, they like conspiracy theories about the state and about the market. They like to say that, well, it isn't a faceless state system or a faceless market system that is running my life. It's some group of, of very rich, very powerful people. And those people actually have the kind of relationship with the state or with the market that I want to have, right? Those people are like Roman senators. The, the things that they want actually matter and, and the decisions they make actually matter. And I'm just not one of those people. And those people are dominating me and I'm being treated as a slave of them, right? Those are the citizens, the real citizens of the system, and, and I'm not one. That's how conspiracy theories work. They say some group of people somewhere else is controlling the market or the state in the way that groups of ancient citizens controlled Athens or controlled Rome. And people like that, even though it positions them as being in a position of being dominated. Right. Because it is more comfortable to think of yourself as dominated by people than dominated by something utterly faceless that is larger than any particular person or group of people, and which is fundamentally an out-of-control system, which evolves on the basis of its own logic, independent of what any given person or group of people want it to be or to do. Right. But the thing which really marks our modern world is that we have these kinds of of artificial agents, automated, increasingly automated institutions and processes, which no particular person or even collection of particular people are able to fully grasp, fully understand. That's why we have social science, because we can't even fully grasp these institutions and how they work, let alone subject to a plan or a scheme. And I think part of the reason why a lot of people have this kind of thought about these institutions is that they're imagining that somewhere there is a group of people who actually know what's going on and who are therefore actually able to run all of this. And they've somehow concealed from everyone else because they're so good how it all works and how they're running it. And it's comforting, even if those people are selfish and, and villainous and horrible, it's comforting to think that there is at least some group of people who, who are running the thing. Right, right. If you are very terrified by the idea of something which is bigger than, than the people. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of why there's been this fixation. I think it even extends to elites to a large degree. We make this distinction between, oh, they're conspiracy theorists and they are uneducated people. But then the elites, you know, the no, no, the elites are, are wise to all of this. But it's not true because the fixation on liberty itself is itself a kind of conspiracy theory. It's a focus on well, where's the human? I need there to be a human so that I feel okay. Let me find the human so I can say there's a human still well, it, here it, who's making decisions I mean, that matter. At least the notion, and then I, I won't feel dominated I, 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 by this I, faceless structure. I, I'm not sure about that. Whether I think negative liberty is associated with a kind of individual independence, but positive liberty as the ability to do things isn't necessarily associated with the the the, the individual. I mean, liberty, I mean, uh, f for instance, for Hobbes, liberty is the, the independence of the state. Uh, and uh, Machiavelli also thinks that uh, states to be, to be free have to be independent, though Machiavelli adds this Republican um, 
argument. I guess what you're describing kind of follows this uh, or tracks this this transition from the conception of liberty as as non-domination, um, as as liberty from um, bad law. That's the condition of of being in in this kind of modern context. So in in the very recent context of the last hundred or so years, you know, the state became a much larger and more all-encompassing force, really, in the Industrial Revolution and and going forward. Capitalism and and the system of of the market became an all-encompassing force in just the last couple hundred years. And so these things becoming so big and so powerful suddenly makes it much harder to have even the kind of participatory freedom, whether that's participatory in a state or participatory in a market which is envisioned by people like, say, Machiavelli, that kind of freedom is increasingly non-existent for anybody, mm. even for elites. I mean, maybe it's a transition in both concepts of liberty. It's, on the one hand, a transition in the concepts of negative liberty from uh, non-liberty as, as, as non-domination, as, uh, as it is, um, not having bad laws, as liberty from, from, from bad laws, liberty from tyranny. Um, to a conception of liberty as non-interference. Uh, well, non-tyranny and non-domination are quite different. Okay. I mean, they can be defined in a way such that they're similar, but oftentimes when we're talking about domination, we're also talking about not being enslaved. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 by yeah. another person who is doing the enslaving. Well, which is kind of like the... I th- want to say that the relation between master and slave is a bit like the relation between tyrant and subject in ancient thought. The relation between master and slave is a relationship of exploitation, but whereas the relationship between tyrant and subject is a relationship of domination, because the idea of domination here is a political uh, argument about the relationships among citizens. Yes, but a, a tyrant is also often framed as themselves a slave of desire in, say, Plato's thought. So a oh, tyrant yeah. is not necessarily purely a ruler. Well, a tyrant well, can also be depicted as a well, slave. Well, the same applies to the master and the master-slave relationship, right? That they're both that no, no nobody's actually free here because the master is slave to their to their desires. And, well, that depends on the master and on the particular political theorist who's conceiving of that relation. Okay. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be different from the but tyrants. Non tyranny is more is more specific than non domination, which is a broader category and might include tyranny, depending on how the precise ancient theorist conceptualizes the overlap. Yeah, I, I see. Yes, I, well, I, I guess. Uh, I guess um, I just don't want to draw a, a hasty equation between tyranny and domination, although they can certainly be defined in ways which cause them to heavily overlap. Uh, there are aspects to the ways these terms can be thought of that could give them some level of of separation. Yeah, I guess domination. I mean, in terms of politics, we can think of. Um, I, I kind of think that arguments against domination are similar to kind of Aristotle's distinction between. Uh, virtuous and unvirtuous constitutions that the best kinds of constitutions for Aristotle are those that satisfy the needs of kind of all citizens um, that that are common right. whereas uh, the decayed constitutions are are are, are not that way are, 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 so for instance um, tyranny is different from monarchy because even though it's one ruler in both contexts the tyrant uh, in Aristotle's conception, doesn't care about what's good for everyone, but the monarch does. And it's similarly, the difference between 
um, oligarchy and aristocracy for Aristotle is the, arist- the, the, the aristocrats for Aristotle are p- kind of pursuing what's um, what's generally good, whereas the oligarchs are looking after their own needs. And I guess similarly with the distinction between democracy. Right, but yeah. even in a even in a Aristotelian constitution in which you have a virtuous regime, you still have relationships of domination because all Aristotelian constitutions include a master-slave distinction. Y- yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I um... Right. Mm. So all of these, the thing that is ubiquitous in ancient thought is that you have some people who are in a position of being real citizens, who are really part of the state, who are really making the decisions. And for Aristotle, you have a corrupt constitution when some particular element of either either the many, the few, or the one is tyrannizing over the others. So within the citizen population, you have some part of the citizen population which is dominating other parts which should be citizen, which should be participatory, mm. right? But for Aristotle, there is still always, always another part of the population which is the part which he enslaves, which is never participatory, or the part which is female, which is never participatory for Aristotle. So there's always in ancient, in in most ancient conceptions, there is, not everybody, but most have a participatory element and a non-participatory element, Yeah. right? And and that, that, so the point I want to make here is that in the context we're in now, it's much harder to conceive of any element of the society as being participatory in the ancient sense, including even billionaires, oligarchs, extremely wealthy people. It's very difficult to even paint these people as having the level of personal political impact which an Athenian citizen would have yeah, or a Roman citizen. Yeah, yeah. Because of the degree to which these people's decisions are heavily, heavily overdetermined by the way uh, the competitive impulses unleashed by the particular way the political system is configured, right? The particular way the the market system is configured, those systems were much more up for renegotiation in ancient societies. You could yeah. much more overtly make interventions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because of the smaller numbers of people involved, you could say that one person's intervention could much more plausibly reconfigure all of those institutions and structures. Right, right. Right. Which I guess and that, that leads to that transition from the conception of you know, liberty as avoiding domination, as avoiding bad laws to non-interference, which is avoiding just uh, the silence of the laws themselves. Uh, that, well, and yeah. this is why Machiavelli, you know, when he's talking about who's the most glorious, he talks about lawgivers, legislators, and orders of religions and republics, people who come up with the institutions or heavily reshape them as being the people who have the most glory because these are the people who exercise the most freedom. They have the most personal human agency. Mm. Right? Yeah. Well, so I guess for, now, for Machiavelli, liberty is legislation, but for, for Hobbes, liberty can be the absence of uh, legislation in certain areas of life, that the areas of life where laws don't um, cover what we can do, where we can make choices that aren't determined by law, are those areas where for Hobbes we can have have liberty. But that, I guess that arguably is jeopardized. But what's really being described from from a Machiavellian point of view, the liberty that Hobbes is describing there is a liberty for subjects rather than for citizens. The subject has liberty wherever they are not commanded. 
but they have no right to to be f- free from command or to formulate their own commands or to give themselves objectives or goals uh, in in defiance of of command, right? So once you you've you've kind of made this concession to the idea that you are free insofar as you are not being told what to do, then you are certainly not in any way participatory. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, and and yeah. the reason to make that move is that it's easier to plausibly tell someone that there is some them, some individual self, which has been given free space in some private domain where this increasingly powerful set of public structures doesn't intervene. And so you see how this this results in this public-private distinction in which the individual is being told that in the private space, which is marked off as separate from where the state goes, the stuff they're doing is them. And therefore, insofar as they have trouble or have failures in that private space, they can't say that that's because the state prevented them from being successful in what they wanted to do, right? So it all then becomes about, well, where's the line between public and private? What is the stuff that is me and therefore where I'm exercising freedom and therefore where I also have responsibility? And what is the stuff that is not me and therefore the stuff that is potentially an interference, right? And all of this, all of this vitiates the old sense in which all of this stuff was united because the citizen was part of the state and therefore the state's acts were actually empowering, okay? When when the Roman state does something, a Roman citizen feels in some way that they are doing that thing. So the state becomes a great big extension of the agency of the citizen in ancient thought because the state is is the citizen doing things in the world right the state is personal whereas the modern state is impersonal and so there's a pivot, right yeah. so the modern state is an other that impinges upon you yeah right yeah and so and and yet we aren't able to totally buy this idea that Freedom is just freedom from interference. Nobody is fully satisfied by something like the Habesian notion that, well, if you're not in chains, you're free. Right. Or f- you know, that, well, if you agree to something, even if someone puts a gun to your head, well, you agreed to it, so you're free. Or those areas where- the, Which is something that Hobbes argues. Yeah. Th- those areas where, yeah, we're not in chains and there might not, and, and the law doesn't cover is where there's kind of maximal liberty, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, and the and the stronger the state becomes, and the stronger the market becomes as organizing structures and principles, the harder it is for us to really feel like there's an area which is really genuinely private and separate. Right. And the whole feminist movement, in part, comes out of this observation that this public-private distinction is kind of a lot of malarkey. That there isn't really some kind of firm separating line between these spaces. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, the, 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 yeah. And the main function of the spaces is so the state can deny its interference in your life. Right. right. So if you are a woman who's been put in a position of being a homemaker by social structures, because the family and the home is the private sphere, the state can say, well, I didn't compel you to do that. Yeah. And the feminist movement rightly observes that there's still very much a sense in which a woman who is pushed by social structures into being a homemaker has been compelled to do that. Right, right. And that I, I guess the, the fact that that's changed over time has led people to 
often make the argument that maybe you know maybe social structures aren't there. But as as Nancy Fraser has uh, um, argued quite a lot recently, um, it's uh, you know say in in terms of um, the distribution of um, housework, um, you know that has changed. Um, in such a way that you know it's still the case that social structure that there are still social norms and social structures. It's just that they've been influenced in uh, such a way that it's more um, it's more marketized now, and so the, the traditional notion of the family has changed. But it doesn't mean that the family is any less constrained by uh, by economic forces. Um, and if anything, what's been happening over the past. Uh, a couple of decades has been the expansion of the market aided by the state into um into uh into fresh domains um like in the, part uh, because family. a lot of people will not perceive an infringement on liberty if it comes from one or the other a lot of people who will see it if it comes from the state won't see it if it comes from the market and vice versa yeah i i want to come back to this idea of conspiracy theory in the concept of liberty. Microfoundations, the idea that all structures are just kind of reifications and that at bottom every structure is reducible to people and that therefore you can find individuals exercising agency in every structure. To some degree, I think that this whole theory is kind of a conspiracy theory which in yeah, the sense yeah. in the sense that it is a a desire to preserve a sense that human beings individual human beings are actively shaping our social world at a time when social structures are growing so large so amorphous and so powerful that it's very implausible to say that there is a sense in which there are individuals distinct from these processes which act on them as if from outside. Uh, I get, yeah. And that therefore, in, in the contemporary context, liberty has kind of become a vehicle for sustaining illusion. Mm-hmm. And it's lost a lot of its usefulness, in part because almost any attempt to use it involves either demanding something that is not obtainable from where we are politically. You can't get the kind of involvement in the state or in the market that you could get in much smaller, more primitive societies. Or it's become a way of watering down your expectations to the point where what you want from social life is extremely minimal. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I think that, that this is part of why the concept of liberty is so ubiquitous, because whereas equality, there are at least some ways of conceptualizing equality that would put quite heavy demands on the state that are theoretically within the realm of what might be possible. When it comes to liberty, the demanding versions of liberty are pretty much impossible, and states don't really have to worry about them coming about. Uh, Right, and, right. And the the actual obtainable versions of liberty are very undemanding. What about the um, attempt by um, people like Quentin Skinner and Philippe Petit in um, 
universities have revived the Republican idea of liberty. Is this politically tractable, um, the Republican idea of liberty, small, smaller Republican? Or is um, the idea of liberty as a, as a, um, as a participatory concept um, not tenable? Or, or else is it very easy to assimilate that argument into ideas of non-interference? Perhaps the way in which we see these kind of ancient ideas of liberty is so shaped by our modern lenses that it's very, very hard to a kind of re- revive even a kind of Renaissance idea of um, liberty. And I guess when people are trying to revive the ancient yeah. stuff, it's just often through the, through the Renaissance and there's that, there's that difficulty too. So a lot, of, a lot of attempts to do this come back to non-domination, which of course is a rather negative way of, yeah, of offering Right, this. right, right. And of course, another is to emphasize a more participatory element. Now, if you want thick participation, that requires a, a scale that we don't operate on. We operate on a scale that makes thick participation more or less impossible for large numbers of people. So if you want some kind of participation, it has to be a lot thinner. Right now, one way of of pitching this is is you could imagine uh, a kind of of uh, thinner way of thinking about this. So instead of saying that the individual human will exercise agency in the state, you could imagine a more theoretical resolution in which there's a kind of co-constitutive relationship between the citizens and the state, or or if you want to talk about markets, consumers in the market, a kind of co-constitutive relation in which the state formatively structures the citizen and the citizen, while heavily, heavily shaped by those formative structures, can, as part of a collective body, remake those structures in turn, but not as an individual, but as part of some kind of collective body. Yeah, yeah. Right? The part and the whole. Now, the trouble is, this requires the individual to identify with this collective body. And most of the time, when we try to conceive of a collective body of that kind, we end up with something that is quite rigid and dogmatic and exclusive. So it needs to be thin enough to actually include the citizens in a broad sense, right? If you think of it as a kind of national people or an ethnicity or a race, it becomes very exclusive. And that has all sorts of pernicious effects. So you need something that's thin enough. Well, what can you then unite people around? Well, I think that you could imagine citizens coming together to pursue for the citizenry sets of rights which they associate with citizenship. And that to be a citizen, to be part of the collective, is to be a possessor of this basket of rights taken together, right? And so, of course, the state forms people, but people can then act in ways which potentially increase the size of this basket of rights or improve the quality of the rights that are in the basket, right? And so the thing that the citizens possess in common is not, say, an ability to individually participate not in an agentic way within the state, but it is a set of rights that, are, that you can cash out in terms of particular resources or, or uh, capabilities 
that people have, right? So this is where you can connect this to equality. Uh, now, very often when we talk about liberty and equality, people pit these things against each other yeah. and say, well, to try to get equality, you would have to besmirch liberty, right? Because to get equality, you would need to use big structures, which would limit the liberty of individuals. Now, that's predicated on those individuals having meaningful liberty, i.e. really being able to act as if outside of states and outside of structures. Now, if we acknowledge that we really can't do that in the kind of society that we're building, that the kind of society that we're building is, is very, very impersonal and amorphous and blobby, then we get past that, and then we could instead see uh, freedom as something which is realized in an irreducibly collective way through the expansion of sets of citizenship rights. Now, that's very attractive to me, and I think that is largely a kind of republicanism, and a lot of the rights you would, you would include in the basket would be vaguely republican-sounding, rights which might protect you from domination or exploitation, also rights which might entitle you to you know, quantities of leisure time or to specific uh, things that you might need, like housing or energy or food. Uh, you can imagine a quite elaborate and, and impressive set of rights that might be large enough and significant enough to really unite people. And you can see a version of this in the American uh, Bill of Rights, where there is a set of rights that people do feel some sort of connection to. And I think there is a kind of American Republican tradition of viewing us as united around our commitment to these rights, rather than united around something like whiteness or masculinity or um, being Anglo-Saxon or some of those other things that people propose is what unites Americans. I think there's a, a plausible, more positive story to tell about America where we're lots of different people in many different ways, but we are united around a set of rights. Now, if you take that set of rights and you make it more robust, you make it larger, you make it thicker, then being a citizen starts to take on real meaning and have real importance, right? And I think that when the Roman Empire got larger and became too large for individual citizens to take meaningfully participatory decisions in government, when it becomes the principate, when it becomes an empire under Augustus, the citizen is able to identify as a citizen not because of their participatory role in the Republican infrastructure, in the Republican institution, but because of the very extensive set of rights which they have as a Roman citizen, which is why, as JFK says, the proudest boast is Kivis Romanus Sum, I am a Roman citizen. It's because of the set of things that you are getting as a citizen, that's what unites you, and you have liberty by exercising those rights. I think that that is a kind of liberty which is potentially compatible with the very, very large amorphous state and market institutions that we have. But it requires a willingness on our part to recognize that we no longer possess that kind of human agency which people had in small republics and small city-states. We're in a situation which is at best the situation of a citizen in the Principate in the period in which Rome was an empire, where the government is not something that we are directly participatory in in any meaningful sense, but there is some set of rights which come out of that state, which we can nonetheless feel is our, uh, are ours, and which give us space to maneuver. And the state we can demand uh, legitimate itself to us 
through the granting and protection of those rights. If it's not willing and not able to give us participation, it could still give us meaningful rights that we could spend our lives meaningfully exercising. Right. Which, I think that is still realistic. And I guess that there is this uh, tension between different concepts of right. And am I right in thinking that you're referring to civil rights rather than human rights? In a more universal well, rights sense. associated with citizenship yeah. because yeah. we are still organized around states. Yeah. We don't have yeah. a global state, and so it's very difficult to articulate a set of human rights which could actually, in practice, be upheld by a state system. Right. Uh, yeah, and yeah. To make this feel real, it actually has to be the case that we do feel that we have these rights and that these rights are actually protected. Human rights have limited utility in sustaining polities because they are so inconsistently protected that people don't really feel that they have them. Right. And there's also the, um, yeah, yeah. And there's also the role of liberty here. I wonder whether the, there's a connection between these ideas of rights and needs and capabilities and liberty, because what they all have in common is, I think, power. They're all to do with what we have the power to do and what we have the ability to do, to do the capacity to do. Uh, and this view of power as a, as a kind of a capacity to do things um, and liberty similarly as a capacity to do things, positive liberty. Um, I guess that- It's hard to get away from that in the end because really that's where- you think about what a slave is in antiquity, and we think of a slave as someone who has been denied a lot of negative liberty. But in antiquity, a slave is principally someone who doesn't have various positive liberties. That's certainly how Aristotle defines a slave. A slave is someone who is like a tool for Aristotle insofar as the slave doesn't choose their own ends, doesn't choose their own goals. A slave is not able, therefore, to do those things and lacks those positive qualities. And that's what makes up the negative position of being a slave. Yeah, Aristotle doesn't define slavery in terms of being in chains or not being free to move. He defines slavery in terms of not being able to choose one's own ends. Right, right. And on that kind of definition, you can be seemingly very free and still a slave. And I think it's a very useful definition to bear in mind. Yeah. Since slavery as a concept is much older than our modern understanding of it. Right. And I, I, I like both parts of that definition, that, that, that freedom to kind of choose our own ends, that that notion of ends gets us away from the notion that all we're, that we're doing positively is calculating the means necessary to achieve certain predefined ends. And so people often say that, okay, we have, we have negative liberty because we're not in chains and we don't live under a, a tyranny, so that's tick tick, um, um, and we get to choose what things to buy to satisfy desires instilled in us um, by our biology or our society. Tick tick. But this forgets that. What about the desires that aren't um, implanted in, in us in this way, or at least directly in this way? What about desires that we? decide a true because we've come at them through a kind of a, a deliberation about what's right and what's good. Uh, and we, we forget about these things. That What about those ends in life that aren't given to us by um, 
nature or society. And I guess yeah. maybe- And those are ends that we can't individually demand from states or markets because of our smallness relative to them. Right. They are things which can only be demanded politically at scale. And so we have to see our freedom as something that we share with others and that we do with others rather than something which is just for us, which is the domain of our ego and ourself that we exercise as apart from, as private and separate from everything else. For freedom to still be a meaningful concept, it must be something we do together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess there's also the question of the tension between liberty and necessity. Um, and perhaps what we're coming towards is the idea that to have liberty is only possible when certain needs are met. And that unless our um, biological and our social needs are met and balanced with each other, it's not possible to have um, any kind of liberty, really. And those needs are uh, yeah, we, uh, yeah, both economic and political. All, yeah, we can't come together and healthfully develop our society in the directions that we collectively develop it if lots of us are stuck in positions of scarcity of psychological and physical need and want yeah for someone to really exercise a right to constitute the state and constitute the market and constitute these things in turn to really be co-constitutive you have to be given a context in which you can really be part of this whole big thing that we're all making that we are all too small to claim that we individually make, but which we are all nonetheless making. There has to be a set of background conditions, and that's something which could be laid out in a set of rights. Mm. I think that's the best we can do, at least for now. Well, I, well, uh, I have to run, so we got oh, sure. to wrap up, unfortunately, for this week. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But there will be more. There will be more. We will talk more about this. Uh, I think that we have a few, a few other related ideas that may develop into additional episodes on on subjects related to this. Yeah. I don't mean to cut you off. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say one very brief thought that yeah, we we often, as with the equality episode, talk about different concepts of equality or different concepts of liberty. Whereas we found, I think, that a lot of these things fit together more than people think they fit together. Um, like the conditions for liberty, liberty itself, um, political, economic liberty, positive, negative liberty, that these divisions themselves can be difficult and problematic. And sometimes maybe we're not looking for concepts of liberty, but a concept of liberty, a kind of a unified view that might, that might someday develop. Well, I think that there's also some value in, in not just talking about how you can define something, but how you would not use that term. Right, right, right. right? Because every term that we use in political theory has itself a shelf life and a period of time in which it's been in vogue. What did it mean to not use that term? And what alternatives to that term are there? So that kind of widens the conceptual lens yeah. a little bit more. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we may do this with uh, maybe with representation. We may do a few other things. 
But uh, do let us know, by the way, guys, if you like this format where I throw a topic at Edmund and then we talk about it. It's a little bit different. Uh, let, let, let me know if you like it. And thank you guys for listening. You can uh, find us at patreon.com slash political theory 101, all lowercase, no space. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.